This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, welcome to Health Check. I'm Joyce Teo, a senior health correspondent with The Straits Times. The Singapore government is keen to boost palliative care support to help more end-of-life patients spend their remaining time at home if they prefer to do so. But for every patient who chooses to die in the comfort of his or her own home, there has to be a caregiver willing to provide the care. So in the previous two episodes, I spoke with a palliative care expert, Dr. Alitia Yi, on what palliative care is about, how it can help a dying person live well, and what it takes to see more end-of-life patients live out their last days at home. So in this episode, we will be talking about what to expect when caring for a dying person at home, as well as the help that's available here. With me here is Mr. Tay Jiasen, a medical social worker from HCA Hospice, which is the largest home hospice care provider in Singapore. Hi, Jason. Welcome to Health Check. Hi, good afternoon, Joyce. So home hospice care is about caring for someone with a serious illness who is approaching the end of life and has chosen to spend his or her last days at home, right? Mm -hmm. So tell us, when does it start? So um, a lot of our patients, they actually get diagnosed uh, with, for example, cancer or end-stage organ failure when they are in the restructured hospitals or even private hospitals. So once the doctor assessed that the patient's condition, right, with the patient's condition, their lifespan is a year or less, then they would be eligible for home hospice service. And this is when the doctors in the hospitals would discuss with the patients and their family members uh, about the possibility of receiving home hospice care. And if the patient and their family members are agreeable, then um, the hospital team would draft up a referral letter and then they would uh, refer to HCA Hospice. So this is the start of their journey with HCA. So once HCA receives the referral, then our team of doctors, nurses and social workers, we would visit the patients at their homes uh, to provide care and then as well as to manage their symptoms. So after the first visit, you will actually visit the homes of patients and caregivers on your own, is that right? Yes. So depending on the needs of the patient, because for example, if the patient is exhibiting a lot of symptoms, then perhaps the nurse would go in to address the pain or the shortness of breath. Then, for example, in another scenario, if the patient or caregiver is experiencing a lot of emotional challenges, then I would go in to provide uh, supportive counselling as well as to help them to process their uh, emotions and thoughts. So, Jason, you were saying that earlier you were on a home visit, right? Can you tell us, you know, what, what a home visit is like and, you know, what were some of the things that were discussed during that visit? Mm-hmm. So, usually for a home visit, um, typically we would, uh, social workers, we will perform our assessment. We will look at, you know, like, uh, for example, the understanding of the, how much does the patient understand about his or her medical condition? We would also assess the financial situation of the family. And then we would also assess, like, for example, how the family is coping in relation to caring, uh, to providing care for the, the patient. As the patient's medical condition progresses, the care needs may increase. And then this is the time whereby we would discuss with the family members about, for example, are they able to take time off from work to provide care for the patient? Or what are some of the plans that they have in mind 
if one day they feel that they are no longer able to cope with the care of the patient. So through a series of conversations, um, we would uh, also provide resources for the caregivers to consider. So for example, right, this particular home visit that I went today, there was a lady who was diagnosed with end-stage renal failure. Yeah, and then she had decided not to proceed with dialysis due to personal reasons. So during the home visit, we had a series of discussion regarding you know, what to expect in the future if she stops receiving dialysis. For example, she may experience lethargy or some of the symptoms may also include skin itch. So, so then we psychoeducated her regarding some of the symptoms to expect. And at the same time, we also met up with her caregiver, who is her husband. And we also asked him about the preparations for the future, such as whether he is prepared to stop work eventually to provide full-time care for her. And this led to another discussion. If he stops work, then how is he going to manage the finances of the family? Because you know, when a caregiver stops work, there's a substantial loss of income in the family. And, and what are some of the uh, resources? Could, for example, could the children chip in more for the monthly allowance? Or could other relatives uh, come in, pop by and, and help to support the care of patient as well? It sounds really difficult. Yeah, it, it can be challenging to support uh, patients who are experiencing end-of-life medical condition. So sometimes it is very hard to open up conversations regarding death, dying, or the possibility of deterioration. Um, so I guess the key thing is I often respect what is their comfort level and what are they ready or not ready to discuss. Right. So how about those that, you know, who can't, the patients who can't accept that they are dying, yeah, how do you handle those cases? So, of course, firstly, I respect their point of view. Yeah, because no matter what, I think hope is a very strong motivator. Right, All of us need hope in our lives. So, if this is what the client is hoping for, meaning the client is still not ready to talk about death and dying, but the client is more inclined to talk about things that he or she can still hope for, then I would steer the conversation towards hope. So these conversations could sound like in the next one to two months, is there anything that you look forward to with regard to your current medical condition? Is there anything that you hope that the medical team can do for you? Or is there anything that you hope that your family members can do for you? Because we do encounter patients who up to their very last breath, they still have difficulty trying to come to terms about their own mortality. So we do respect that and then we pace with them. Well, that sounds very difficult. You probably have to talk to people who might be crying sometimes. So in, in palliative care, right, when we see someone crying, uh, we do not instinctively offer a piece of tissue to the person. We, we feel that this is their expression of sadness or grief and we allow that to uh, come out naturally yeah, because often caregivers would say right um, they cry in front of their relatives or friends sometimes 
they do not have that airtime because their friends or relatives would say that it's it's okay, it's okay, don't don't cry, don't cry. So it abruptly stops them from expressing their sadness or grief. So in palliative care, we acknowledge that you know the expression of grief and sadness is a normal process, and we encourage that. So when our caregivers or clients cry, we are present with them. We be there for them, and then we wait with them until their emotions settle down before we carry on with any conversation. Right. So, but in you know talking about this, what about the equipment that they need, or sometimes they might need hands-on help? Yeah. Do you guys help with that? Yes. So, in terms of equipment, uh, HCA we have a warehouse that loans out uh, assistive devices. So, assistive devices could include electric hospital bed. Uh, it can also include walking aids such as walking stick, walking frame, or even wheelchair. For example, our regular bed, right? Our regular bed, sometimes it can be too low. And if our caregivers, they have to bend very low to, for example, support the patient to get up, sometimes it could hurt their lower back. Yeah, so, so this is why sometimes we would suggest the patients to consider using a hospital bed. So, Justin, how common is caregiver burnout? And, you know, what are some of the resources available for caregivers? So, from time to time, we do see caregivers who are very stressed. And we do acknowledge that being a caregiver is a very stressful role because, you know, it's almost like 24-7. There's no annual leave. There's no remuneration. Some caregivers find that it's very hard to take time off to care for themselves. So in terms of support for caregivers, I mean, other than supporting them through, for example, emotional support, we also provide caregivers training. So the caregivers training is to equip caregivers with the relevant skills so that they know how to take care of the patient at home, which is to provide nursing care, medication management, and then also in terms of educating them about uh, what are the resources available in the community. Yeah, so for example, in the community, there are services known as home personal care. Uh, there are nursing assistants who go to the homes of the patient to help them to uh, shower. I mean, I'm imagining that if I'm actually caring for somebody who's dying at home, right, the hard part might be towards the end of the person's life in the final days when it can get very intense how's the support like can i just call somebody and somebody can come down and help me yeah how is it like so for hca hospice we have a 24-hour hotline especially when patients are towards the end of life sometimes it can be very unsettling for family members to witness the signs and symptoms of dying with the availability of the 24-hour hotline uh, caregivers can call the on-call team for advice on what they can do. So typically when a caregiver calls the hotline, the nurse or doctor on duty would advise you know, whether there's a need to give medication or whether this is natural sign of the dying process. Uh, our doctors can also offer to do a video call to assess the situation and see whether what kind of advice would be appropriate for the caregiver. Okay, but you're, they're kind of on their own then. When you make a commitment to do this, you kind of have to be very strong, I guess. 
Yeah, right. So, uh, like what you mentioned, I guess the other part is how mentally prepared are family members in witnessing the suffering of a loved one? Because it can be very traumatizing. I must admit that it can be very traumatizing for a caregiver to witness the eventual deterioration as well as the suffering of a loved one. And therefore, sometimes you'd also ask caregivers, like, are you mentally prepared that your loved one may display certain symptoms? And are you confident enough that you would be able to manage the care of your loved one at home? So for families who share that they are not able to bear to see the suffering of their loved one, then we perhaps we would need to explore other care options. For example, this could include referring the patient to an inpatient hospice, whereby there are nurses and doctors who are able to provide care for the patient in a very controlled setting. What are some of these symptoms? So depending on the nature of the medical condition, some common symptoms could involve pain, especially for certain types of cancers, or shortness of breath. Sometimes our patients also experience confusion or delirium, whereby they are very confused and they couldn't even recognize the, their loved ones anymore. At other times, our patients may also exhibit symptoms such as restlessness, whereby they are just very fidgety and very generally anxious, but they cannot pinpoint like what exactly is causing them this generalized sense of anxiety. When you mentioned the shortness of breath, does it come suddenly? I mean, is it something that they can expect? So say, for example, if there are unexpected symptoms, sometimes family members, they would first call the hotline to seek medical advice. right? And if this is something that is very new, that the medical team has not seen before previously, then the medical team may advise the caregiver to call 995 to send the patient to the hospital so that further investigations can be done. Uh, because if this is something new, then we would probably want to find out like, hey, can this symptom be reversed or not? Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Let's continue the conversation with my guest, Mr. Tae Tiasen, a medical social worker from HCA Hospice. So if you're caring for somebody at home, you know, what are the signs and symptoms to look out for that tells you that the person you're caring for is dying? Increased drowsiness, for example. Uh, caregivers often witness that their loved ones are sleeping more and more. And then there are less pockets of time when the patient is awake. And then the second one is the decrease in appetite because as the body is starting to shut down the body does not require as much food as for example like a healthy and active person so the dying person would have a decrease in appetite and then sometimes because due to a decrease in blood flow within the body caregivers may find that hey why are the limbs of my loved ones so cold why are they so cold to the touch and sometimes the, the color of the skin may appear to be a little bit bluish due to the lack of oxygen. In some of our patients, they may hear what we call the death rattle. 
So the death rattle is because there's a production of secretions at the back of the throat and the patient is not able to swallow the secretions, right? So when they breathe uh, using their mouth, there, there could be like a rattling sound. And then last but not least, um, there's also changes in breathing patterns. For example, they could stop breathing for like 30 seconds. And then when you thought that the patient is already gone, and then they start breathing again. I see. So these would be the symptoms that you would have discussed with the caregiver beforehand, right? So yeah, we would we would prepare the caregivers when we observe that the patient is deteriorating so that the caregivers, they can have a mental preparation of what to expect in the next phase. Oh, I see. So how often do you actually visit the patient? Would it be, say, every two weeks or month? So if, for example, the caregiver is experiencing a lot of caregiver stress, I could visit them on a weekly basis. On top of that, I would also follow up with them through WhatsApp messages or even phone calls or even video calls. Yeah, just to let them know that uh, support is available or in case if they need to just you know flag out that they need assistance, then someone is someone is contactable. Yeah. Justin, so why did you choose this line, right? Like tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. So this story happened probably around I think maybe around fifteen years ago. So I had a pet dog who one day uh, was diagnosed with kidney failure, right? So when we brought the dog to the vet, the vet diagnosed my dog with kidney failure and he gave our pet dog a very short prognosis and he said that uh, things are not looking that good. Would you like to put your dog down to sleep? Yeah, that was what the vet asked my me and my family. So at that point of time, we were shocked because we did not expect such a bad piece of news. So after thinking, I mean, we didn't even have to think. We, we felt that uh, no need to put down our dog to sleep now. Yeah, so in the next half a year, we slowly observed the deterioration of my pet dog. So he started to eat less. And there was a point of time whereby he couldn't walk anymore. And then he had to uh, pass motion and urine on the bed yeah so so through this whole process it helped me to appreciate the value of palliative care because even though we knew that you know there's no way to reverse the kidney failure but we do what we can we showered our pet dog with love until his very last day on earth it really inspired me and allowed me to see the value that you know even a pet could receive palliative care, what more uh, our loved ones or the people around us and the people in the community. Which part of your work gives you the most satisfaction? I derive satisfaction from being able to journey with our patients because it is a privilege to be able to enter the homes of our patients, uh, to hear their life stories, to celebrate their successes, to empathize with the challenges that they have. Right. And actually, it doesn't end there, does it? So you actually help the patient and the caregiver. And what happens after the patient dies? Social workers uh, do provide bereavement support to caregivers as well. So we would uh, contact the family after the death of the patient to find out how the caregiver is coping. So recently, we had a bereaved caregiver who lost her mom. 
Yeah, so her mom passed on in a very unexpected manner. Yeah, so she was not prepared for the death of her mom. So we kept in contact and, you know, I was still visiting her at home to provide emotional support. So one day she texted me and said that, you know, today is the one month anniversary of uh, after my mom's death. Uh, and I feel like going to the Columbrium to pay my respects to her. So I felt that this was an opportunity. And so I asked her, uh, can I accompany you? And uh, very generously, she said that, yeah, sure, come along. And then we paid respects to the patient. And then we spoke about her feelings and the thoughts after mom passed on. Part of the conversation included, uh, you know, the purpose of the visit on that day, uh, like why she had brought this particular color of flowers for mom. And what do the flowers represent? Is there a particular flower language that she's trying to express to mom? And then also we also spoke about her caregiver journey. We reflected uh, upon her caregiver journey of what are some of the things that she felt that she did well, or what are some of the things that she felt that she could have done better, and we processed that as well. So that particular experience is an example of how we journey with our patients uh, and caregivers, and we allow them to talk about topics which they may find hard to share with other people, yeah, because being in this industry, uh, our caregivers know that you know, we serve patients who are dying day to day. So whatever they share with us, they felt that we could empathize with what they were sharing. Right. And all these um, sessions and, and the extra sessions that you mentioned, do I have to pay for the individual sessions? How does it work, actually? So the services provided by HCA, so in terms of medical or even psychosocial support, it's all free of charge. Yeah, so when our doctors, nurses, social workers, art therapists, spiritual counsellors and psychologists, when our team visits the patient, uh, it is a free of charge service. So Jason, you've visited so many patients and caregivers over the years, right? What's your advice for you know someone who might be thinking about whether they can or you know they're able to care for a dying person at home? When caregivers consider of taking care of a loved one at home, their common considerations could include finances and also whether there's physical space at home to take care of their loved one and whether there's an available caregiver and is this caregiver committed to the care of the patient. And we also take into account uh, what is the health status of the caregiver. We also look at what is the social support of the caregiver does the caregiver have friends or other relatives that can come in to support in case he or she is feeling tired from caregiving duties? And also, what is the support available from the community in general? So of all of these factors, right, I would say that the availability of caregiver and the commitment of the caregiver are one of the more important factors to consider because if there is no availability of caregiver, then this care-at-home plan uh, cannot even materialize. So this, this dying is actually um, 
an event that happens only once in our lifetime. So being able to provide care for someone whom we are especially close to can be very meaningful because we get to share this journey with them. But of course, at the same time, it can be filled with challenges as well. So sometimes we would also check in with you know, the perspective of our caregivers because sometimes our caregivers, they are able to process and say that, uh, for example, if this particular caregiver is taking care of his or her parent, the caregiver may process this journey as, I am returning the good of what my parent has given me and now I'm passing, I'm returning back the, the good to my parent. Yeah. Or sometimes caregivers could also process it as, I've received good from so many people in my life. Right now I'm passing on the love that I've received from the people around me to the patient whom I'm caring for. Yeah. So if caregivers they are able to attribute a positive meaning to caregiving, then it sometimes can help uh, in the caregiving process because they identify the meaningfulness behind their duty yeah, of providing care. Right. Thank you very much, Jason, for talking about this difficult topic. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Joyce Teo. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in the podcast text description below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.